If you turn back and have open before you Psalm number 10, uh, we'll make our way through this psalm this evening. Psalm number 10. And the theme of our study this evening is really just the first three words of this psalm. Psalm number 10, the first three words, why, O Lord? Why, O Lord? This month is the 24th anniversary of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, a much-loved, perhaps controversial figure about whom much has been written and many TV shows and films created. But in the wake of Diana's death in 1997, uh, the royal family, including the Queen, were uh, at Balmoral in Scotland at the time. And meanwhile, a huge number of people from among the general public were gathering to pay their respects outside Buckingham Palace in London. And as that week went on, there began to be a certain amount of tension in the crowd in London. People began to ask why the Queen and other members of the royal family hadn't left Scotland and come down to London to meet the mourners and share their grief. The question was, why is the Queen (coughs) staying away? Why isn't she here? Why isn't she with her people and bringing comfort to them? Why? It's the same question asked by the psalmist at the beginning of Psalm 10. A question he asks about his ruler, his king, his God. Verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here's a faithful believer. A child of God feeling as though his God is distant and refusing to act against a world, as we'll see, full of idolatrous Wicked enemies. And surely we can all identify with the question of Psalm 10. Why, O Lord? Perhaps we've even been asking it at times this past week as we've seen wicked men who in many ways perfectly match some of the descriptions of this psalm. Taking back power in the war-torn land of Afghanistan. Why, O Lord? Perhaps we've asked this question as we grapple with Hurts and pains and problems in our own lives. Why, O Lord? Perhaps we ask it when we see another hurricane or devastating flood or fire. Or when we hear the opinions, the popular opinions of our world. Why are those people in those positions of power or influence? Why? Well, Psalm 10 helps us to answer that question in some respects and shows us at least when the the right time and what the right way is to ask this question. So we make our way through the psalm this evening. Notice, first of all, descriptions of our wicked world. Descriptions of our wicked world. The main reason for the psalmist asking why is because of of the security, success and power Of the wicked people he sees around him. As the psalmist looks around his world. It seems like the enemies of God are prospering. They're getting by seemingly without any stress whatsoever. And yet they have no regard for God and his word. This is a complaint of several psalms. But few psalms spend as much time on it as Psalm 10 does. For 10 verses. From verse 2 to verse 11. 
The psalmist describes the attitude and the actions of the wicked. And he is, he is complaining, he is petitioning, he is crying out to God. Uh, presenting all of this evidence to his God as it were. Look at verse 2. In arrogance, he says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Literally, the idea here is that the wicked person shouts about what he is doing. He, he's, he gets attention for this. He, he seeks to persecute and to, and to destroy people in a very public way. And it's the poor that the wicked, we're told, hotly pursue. And throughout the psalm, the word poor doesn't just mean someone who doesn't maybe have very much money, but someone who isn't shown any respect, someone who is targeted for their beliefs or their position in society, someone trying to live a life of obedience to God, but getting no real reward for it. The psalmist says the wicked is proud, verse 4. Uh, And the sense here is that he is his own moral authority, that he doesn't feel he has to answer to anyone. He he plays by his own rules. Verse 5 says, his way prospers at all times. Just seems like everything falls into place for the wicked. Uh, Nothing disrupts them. Nothing holds them back. Nothing seems to get in the way of them doing what they want. Even though they don't obey God's word. Verses 7 to 9, he describes how the wicked actively seek to harm needy people. Uh, There's thought and there's time and effort going into this attack on the poor. Uh, Verse 8 says he waits in ambush. Verse 9 says he lurks. You know, someone who lurks, they're, they're waiting for the best moment to strike. He waits patiently for a chance to harm the poor. So friends, this is the world that the psalmist looks out upon a world full of people like this. Their language, their actions, their attitude is all so wicked. And there's a thread that weaves its way through all these descriptions. And that is that these wicked people are what we might call functional atheists. Functional atheists. And what I mean by that is that regardless of what they might claim or say, They act as though God doesn't exist. They might claim some belief in some kind of God, but their actions show that they don't believe that there is a God to whom they are ultimately accountable. Look at verse 4. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Or look at verse 11. He says in his heart, this is the wicked again, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face He will never see it. Notice, by the way, friends, how the wicked constantly have to keep trying to talk themselves into believing that God doesn't exist. In verse 4, he's just adamant, oh, there is no God at all. But in verse 11, he's saying, well, maybe there is a God, but he doesn't see me. He doesn't care about what I'm doing. The the, the wicked, the atheist, they, they, they constantly have to convince themselves that God doesn't exist because deep down they know that's not the case. But according to the Bible, the way the Bible puts it to us is that atheists are not just the, those who loudly, proudly declare that there is no God at all. You know, the sort of Stephen Fry or Richard Dawkins types. But atheists are also those who act as though there is no God. 
Again, regardless of what they might claim to believe. They might claim to believe in some version of God. They might say, oh yes, I believe there's a God. Or they might even be very passionate about following their particular God. Such as Allah and his supposed demands for an Islamic caliphate. But they convince themselves that their sins won't be judged. And they're a law unto themselves. Charles Spurgeon says, the only place where God is not is in the thoughts of the wicked. Where the God of heaven is not, there the Lord of hell is reigning and raging. In the mind of someone who keeps telling themselves and acting according to the idea that there is no God, they're actually being influenced by the evil one himself. And so regardless of what some people say, friends, and claim, the Bible would say that they are atheists in how they act, acting as though there is no one to whom they are accountable. It doesn't happen very often because we have very good campers at our summer, at our church summer camps. But sometimes at boys' camp, which uh, I, I have the pleasure of serving on, sometimes after you've told the boys to go to bed and go to sleep and all the lights are off and everyone's in their rooms. Occasionally, if you're the officer on duty, uh, after a little while you might hear some fistling and rustling in one of the rooms as one of the campers thinks that they'll very stealthily and quietly sneak a sweet or a sip of Coca-Cola or they'll have a quiet chat with the person in the, in the bed next to them. And in that moment, the camper is acting as though there are no officers there. As though there is no one to whom they are accountable. And of course the officer on duty who hears or sees these things can act as they see fit. They can get the camper out of bed and uh, tell them about their punishment there and then. Or they can decide to wait until the morning and uh, put it off and tell them in the morning what trouble they're in. And So here friends the psalmist is describing the wicked as he waits for God to bring judgment. Right now it seems as though the wicked are getting away with it. And this is the world we're looking at out at as well, is it not? The people who don't seem to have any problems sometimes from our point of view are the wicked. The functional atheists who act as though there is no God. When you hear some of the opinions that are expressed about the moral issues of our day. Sexuality and gender and life and death. Do you sometimes ask, why, O oh Lord? When we see wicked men who would enslave women and children and terrorize their own citizens, when we see them sweeping back into power, we might think, why, O oh Lord? Why do those who have no love for God seem to be given so much freedom by God? Why do I have to face these problems when that person or those people, they don't seem to face any of those types of problems? Does God not see? Does God not care? And yet, friends, I want us to consider what a comfort it is to find a psalm like Psalm 10. With the descriptions, the realistic, accurate descriptions of the world in which we live. The psalms are not sappy, soppy love songs. They're honest about the frustrations and questions we have as God's people in this wicked world. Descriptions of our wicked world. Thankfully the psalm doesn't end there because secondly we see declarations about our sovereign God 
declarations about our sovereign God. In verse 12, the mood of the psalm changes drastically. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Uh, In Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 10, he took the view that verses 2 to 11, they're like the psalmist acting like a lawyer in a courtroom, as I said earlier, laying out the evidence, saying, here's exhibit A and B and C for your consideration, O God. And then in verse 12, it's like uh, having laid out his case, uh, the, the lawyer now says, right, arise, it's time for God to bring the judgment. You've heard the facts, you've heard the case now, pronounce the sentence. And from verse 12, there is confidence building in the psalmist. There's growing anticipation that the situation is not going to be allowed to continue much longer. Look at verse 14. He says, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. You do see, he says. Psalmist here is reminding himself and us, friends, about the sovereignty of God. That God misses nothing. That he overlooks nothing. That he, that nothing is hidden from his gaze. We thought this morning about what a comfort that is for us on a personal level. The, the sovereignty of God over the ordinary circumstances of our own personal lives. Friends, God is also of course sovereign over the nations. Over when and how he judges sin and sinners either personally, nationally, globally. As I said, if that camp officer sees a child misbehaving, they might choose to delay punishment, and meanwhile the the camper thinks they've gotten away with it. But the person in charge can punish when and how they see fit. And it's the same with God. He can judge and punish and Uh, He can do those things when and how he sees fit. He is missing nothing about what's going on in our world. If the injustice of our world, friends, grieves and angers us, imperfect human beings who are capable of injustice ourselves, how much more, do you think, does it grieve and anger our holy and perfect, perfectly just God? No one is getting away with anything. God will punish when and how he sees fit. And sometimes God judges sinners by giving them exactly what they want and letting them reap the bitter consequences so that they might realize the the deadly and destructive reality of their sin. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, for this reason God gave them up and he's thinking in particular about sexual sin much of which is so much celebrated and encouraged in our society today. And although the psalmist here talks about the wicked seemingly having no problems, seemingly prospering, friends, sometimes the, the fact is that though it may seem like that to us, those who are indulging their sins and those who seem to be letting loose in whatever sinful ways they please, they're actually living lives of misery and brokenness and doubt and discouragement and heartbreak. And so sometimes God's punishment is to allow sinners to have exactly what they chase after and reaping the bitter consequences of that. But eventually God will deal with sin in another way. Look at verse 15. 
Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, the psalmist says. In the Old Testament, the arm, particularly the right arm, was a a symbol for power. All your strength was summed up in in the the right arm, the symbol of, of someone's arm wielding a spear or a sword or a scepter. The psalmist here is saying that God's mighty right arm is far more powerful than the right arm of his enemies. He will break their arm A picture, of course, of of breaking their power, their position, bringing them to an end. But before he finishes the psalm, also, not only does he declare what God will do to punish the wicked, he also declares God's concern for his own people. Is God really hiding himself in our times of trouble? Has he really given up on his people? Well, of course not. Look at the second half of verse 14. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Look at verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Notice that personal pronoun, you. You will do this. I know what kind of God you are. I know how you care for your people. I've experienced your help already in times of trouble I know that you will provide it again. We might say, friends, that the psalm began with how the psalmist felt. Why, O Lord? But as it comes to an end, it focuses more on what the psalmist knows. And that's, that's, a, that's a good way of approaching our, our worship, friends, that we, we bring how we feel to God. And, and as we pray and as we worship and as we receive his word, We begin to consider more what we know to be true and we allow what is true about God, what is true about what is true from his word to impact how we think and how we feel going forward. And the psalmist knows that God is never really far away, that he is never shut off from the cries of his people, that he is always listening to our prayers. The British public were angry in 1997 because the Queen and her family really were far away from them, miles away. Their their presence wasn't with them in any way, but our God never truly leaves us. And so he makes declarations about God's judgment. He also makes declarations about God's concern for his people. And that leads us to consider thirdly and finally, friends, this evening, applications For our prayers to God. We've thought about declarations about our God. We finish by considering some applications for our prayers to God. Three applications to draw out of this psalm. Firstly, we should pray about what pains us. We should pray about what pains us. The psalmist is incredibly bold and direct as we see at the beginning. Why, O Lord? The very fact that the psalmist is praying about these things demonstrates the strength of his faith and trust in God. Yes, he's heartbroken. Yes, he's asking why, but he's asking God why. He is asking God why. A lot of people, and maybe even some of us sometimes, we we ask why this or why that. But if the answer is anything to do with God, a lot of people aren't interested in the answer. The psalmist doesn't just grumble and complain to other people or to himself. He brings his complaints to the throne of grace. 
Sometimes whatever's causing us pain or difficulty or worry, it actually stops us from praying rather than becoming a part of our prayers. We ask our spouse why, or we complain to our colleagues why, or we worry about it to ourselves. We don't actually ever turn it into a prayer to God. Sometimes even professing Christians, friends, we could become functional atheists because we don't pray. We, we act as though there is no God to bring these things to. Ralph Davis says the fact that this psalm includes the question why proves that the psalmist has faith in God. Davis says the psalmist does not understand Yahweh, but he is still dealing with Yahweh. He might not understand everything that his God is doing, but he is still dealing, still speaking, still praying to his God nonetheless. That's a sign of his faith. He doesn't gossip about his problems or grumble about his problems. He prays about them. Do we do that? Do we pray about what pains us? God, here's what our politicians are doing or not doing. Here's the heartbreaking situations in our world today. Here's the the attitude of my atheistic neighbor or colleague or family member. God, here's how our brothers and sisters in China or Eritrea or Afghanistan are being persecuted by their enemies. God, here's the needs of my little children and the energy I need for them or the wisdom I need for them. None of it is news to God, friends, but it shows a humble faith in God to bring those things to him in prayer. And that is the kind of faith that God will reward in due time. And so this psalm shows us that we should pray about what pains us. But secondly, Psalm 10 shows us that we should pray because of God's rule. We should pray because of God's rule. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king. Forever and ever. The Lord is king forever and ever. It's as simple as that. God's kingship might not be acknowledged today in Kabul or in London for that matter. It might even be openly rebelled against or denied by the wicked. But that kingship continues nonetheless. It is certain. It is dependable. It is unchangeable. Sometimes when we have a problem, we want to know how high up the chain can we take it. Maybe in your work, you have to go through a line manager, a supervisor, a vice, a vice principal, a vice president. There's a whole chain that you have to work your way up before your problem will be addressed. Friends, we can take our problems, our frustrations, our questions to the throne of the king of the universe. Who is reigning forever and ever. That rule is the reason for our prayers. That rule is the, is the fuel for our prayers. That rule is the, the reason why we should pray at all. Ralph Davis in his commentary told the story of a famous author called Lloyd C. Douglas who used to live upstairs from a retired musician. And the two of them became friends and every day Douglas would ask this man, well, what's the news today? And the old musician would pick up his tuning fork, hit it against his wheelchair and declare, that is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. 
It will be middle sea a thousand years from now. The singer upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that is middle sea. Well, even more certain than that old musician's middle sea is the kingship of the one true God. He was king yesterday. He will be king tomorrow. He will be king a thousand and a hundred thousand years from now. And if that wasn't true, friends, there really would be no point reading this psalm, never mind praying in the way that this psalm does. We do it because we believe the Lord is king forever and ever. So we should pray about what pains us. We should pray because of the rule of our king. And then the last application from this psalm, we should pray for our king to return. We should pray for our king to return. Back in 1997, the Queen and the Royals did eventually come down to London and they mixed and mingled with the crowd at the palace. They spoke with people, they sought to comfort people, they looked at all the the flowers and, and well wishes that had been left. And the mere presence of the Queen and her family broke the tension that was building in London and in the nation that week. The return of the Queen, her mere presence, Changed everything. And as we pray, we should do so looking forward to the return of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that when he finally appears, everything will change. He will bring an end to the wickedness described in this psalm. Notice how the psalm ends, friends, with the confidence, look at verse 18, that this King will do justice to the fatherless And the oppressed. When the Lord Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4 tells us that he read from Isaiah chapter 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is the King who will free the oppressed, break the arm of the wicked. And do justice to the fatherless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of Jesus. He must reign. Until he has put all his enemies. Under his feet. Or to use the language of Psalm 10. Until he has broken the arm. Of the wicked and evildoer. J.C. Ryan wrote. To be ever looking for the Lord's appearing. Is one of the best helps. To a close walk with God. To be constantly looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Even as we get on with our daily responsibilities that he has given to us. It will cultivate in us a closer walk with God. Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come. And it will do our souls good to pray that prayer friends. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for justice to be done. Because when Jesus' kingdom comes, he will break the arm of the wicked. He will break their arm sooner or later. Either through justice being done now, certainly through justice being done at the end. We're called to pray, of course, for the salvation of sinners. We're also told to pray, your kingdom come. For our king to return. Psalm 10 begins by asking why. 
In a sense, it ends by saying when. When the king of heaven comes, all will be put right. And in the meantime, friends, we can pray with humility but confidence, knowing that God will never dismiss our prayers. He will always answer sooner or later according to his perfect will. And if you're still doubting, if you're still wondering, well, can we really be sure of this? We know that that he will answer because of what happened at Golgotha when Jesus died. On the cross, Jesus prayed prayers similar to the pattern we see in Psalm 10. Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was the only believer who has ever truly been forsaken to that extent by his father because he was the only one who was punished for the sins of the world. But Jesus' prayers on the cross didn't end with a why. His last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His work was done. His mission was accomplished. He had secured his kingship. He had done his work. His prayer began with the agony that he he felt. It finished with the truth that he knew. And so friends, Jesus knows what it's like to pray, why? And he promises us that despite how we may sometimes feel, despite the seeming success of the wicked, he will never leave us or forsake us. And in the end, he will, in the words of Psalm 10, he will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen.